in anticipation of the big remake coming out next month huh? of Mulan from Disney. Oh. There's been a lot of like uh, different headlines swirling about that because... They're talking about it as a $200 million bet. Mm. Like it's it's kind of blows my mind how expensive it is and how people have kind of reframed the conversation as if like the entire Disney uh, live action remake hinges on this one particular movie. And like with all the, like the coronavirus stuff going on, like it's going to be really interesting how this plays out because, you know, people are going to stay away from movie theaters. Yeah, they might. And and not to mention, it's got all of this like reworking behind the scenes like they they very they've clearly said a couple of times that it's going to be more like in line with the original myth, whatever that means. It's going to be less comedy. It's going to be more like epic adventure uh, action. Well, there's no Eddie Murphy. So. No Eddie Murphy. Uh, very few songs. The if if anything, we might get a redo of Christina Aguilera's "Reflection," right? Which is like the the dramatic song from the not not the best song in the in the original movie, which was "I'll Make a Man Out of You." Correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't Liu Yifei not sing? Like she's an actress by trade, not really a singer. Yeah. So the question is, like, do they just have "Reflection" play like instrumentally during some? dramatic part of the movie or does it just pop up right. during the credits like it probably won't be it was during the trailer they played it the instrumental version. yeah just kind of in the background of one of the sequences I- exactly yeah so so it might be how I... they do it there's there's a part of me that like w- kind of wants this to be a flop <laughs> so just so we can have like less of these but if it flops do you think that it they'll just t- they'll stop doing as many live action remakes or will they just go back to what they were doing before which is live action remakes that are carbon copies of animated ones because this is one where it's like live action remake but they're adding a bunch of other stuff admittedly from the source myth but still making it very different from the cartoon so there's an argument to be made that like it's it's actually better to see if you're going to see on a creative level live action remakes at least they should do something that the cartoon didn't do okay yeah fair point i agree with you there i think the most interesting thing about mulan is that it's not a shot for shot remake but i think if this flops i think disney will maybe maybe give it a second thought um they are ushering marvel's phase four so maybe they'll put their focus behind that right um but if you think about like the classic disney movies i mean there's only so many they can do now Right. Like we've covered most of the ones that have human characters. It's really the the ones like Robin Hood. We got Little Mermaid coming out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but we got Robin Hood um, and some anamorphic animals that may not translate as well. Yeah, they're not going to do Robin Hood, but with like foxes not wearing clothes because that doesn't make any sense. And it's just, I think it's just <laughs> off putting. You know, this is a movie that I feel like hinges a lot on like the Chinese box office. And I really wonder how well it's going to be received. I think for the most part, North American studios have never really understood the Chinese audience. If anything, it's the Russians who actually make movies that do really well in China. Like the ones that have like crazy amounts of CGI. Gonzo. Kind of B-level CGI. Yeah. Yeah, kind of stuff like that. So it'll be interesting. I'm more interested in the outcome and how well the film does rather than the film itself. Well, on that subversive note, (laughs) let's start the show. (laughs) 
Welcome to the Extra Buttery Podcast, a free-flowing conversation between two guys who love film and TV. It's our 69th episode, so insert your own sexual joke here. But in this episode, we talk about the horrific train wreck that is the last thing he wanted, the Invisible Man, and the Assassin. So, Rob, how bad was the last thing he wanted? Oh, boy. Um, Here's the thing about this movie. So this is something that was a quick pickup from Sundance back in January. Netflix picked it up as, a, as an original, and it's an adaptation of the Joan Didion novel of the same name. It came out in 1996, I think. Don't know how you manage, Ellie. Well, that must have been something you lost out on observing once you left. That's not fair. Nope. Let me fill you in. How do I manage? Let's see. Um, well, first I managed to graduate high school after you walked out of Mama 20 years ago. Then I managed to stay at UNLV as long as I could afford it, seeing as how my long-lost father wouldn't tell me what to list as his profession on the financial aid application. Uh, what was it you told me when I finally tracked you down? Import, export? No, no, no. Supply chain. Behind the helm of the movie is Dee Rees, whose movie Mudbound, another Netflix original from a couple of years back, was actually like far and away one of the better movies that year. It was in some people were whispering like some Oscar contention for it. I think it picked up, if not a nom, was it a no- nominated for Best Supporting Actress for um, what was the the actress's name? She's like a multi hyphenate. She plays the matriarch of the family in the movie. Yeah. But anyway, like the. You know, clearly there's some talent behind the the scenes in uh, this movie, uh, is certainly with the, the director. Uh, but this thing just does not come together. I don't know if it was like problems with the source material itself not being easy to adapt or people just not quite cracking the script. But this has got to be one of the most confusing things I've watched in the past like few months easily and it follows the story of a journalist played by Anne Hathaway who basically becomes embroiled in this arms deal that her father is a broker of and so she sort of covers the the contra affair uh events in El Salvador and then throughout the 80s actually becomes embroiled in this uh weapons deal gone wrong if I had not known the story, I think it would have been really difficult for me to figure out what was going on. Oh, yeah. I think I think somewhere in there, there's a good story. Because there, there are moments where, like, there's a lot of tension. There's some historical background to it. I'm not a huge Anne Hathaway fan, but I thought she was really good in this. But it's completely undone by, like, a really incoherent plot and characters. Especially like Ben Affleck, who plays this mysterious government official called Treat Morrison, who ends up sort of having this like romantic relationship with Anne Hathaway, just kind of like that appears out of nowhere. The pacing is so bad that I'm not even sure where like the climax, the falling action and the rising action are. It's not until about like 40 minutes until we meet Anne Hathaway's father in the film played by Willem Dafoe, who is like critical to the story itself and sort of the turning point in Anne Hathaway's character. The, the the pacing is completely off. I There are many points in this film where I just like, I wanted it to move on, but I wouldn't know what to expect next because it's so poorly spliced together. The, the way this kind of plays out is you see Anne Hathaway's character decide to go to Latin America to sort of fulfill her dad's position in completing this drug deal. She's supposed to accompany the weapons, which are like army surplus weapons and ammunition 
drop them off uh, so that these revolutionaries can use them and then bring the money back to the United States to help both pay off uh, her father's creditors, but also take the profits and, you know, I guess, allow her father to retire. But once she actually gets to the jungle, it's just kind of like a series of her running from one place, ending up in a hotel room, sitting in without a, any explanation. Yeah. And sitting in a chair and like not sleeping and just staring out the like staring at the window, like terrified. And then she runs off to another location, sits in, gets in a hotel, sits in a chair and it like repeats ad nauseum until it gets to a point like it needs to yeah do something like 20 minutes before the, the end of the movie. She ends up like cleaning chairs for a character played by Toby Jones, who had not been in anything up until this point and he like his exact role in the plot is very confusing and then it just sort of ends it's uh i i just i I don't understand at the end of the movie and i'm gonna spoil the movie because i we watched it so you don't have to watch it (laughs) and and you should just public this is a public service announcement exactly and you should just avoid this movie anyway but at the end of the movie anne hathaway gets shot and she kind of falls off this like 200 foot cliff yeah and it is the most hilarious shot in the entire movie because everything is pretty fast-paced until like at the last moment you get this like really melodramatic moment where she starts kind of repeating the line she says in the in the beginning of the film to bring it all back but it still doesn't make much sense but anyway she's falling and she's narrating and apparently at sundance when it premiered the audience started laughing at this moment Uh, yeah i read that (laughs) yeah and so i think that tells you i think how relieved people are and also frustrated uh, by by the mo- events of this movie. There's in the opening titles. Did you notice that like the title was written in Braille? Yeah, they had like Braille translations of like various other things. What is up with that? None of the characters are blind. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't understand. I, or was it uh, maybe it was supposed to be like some sort of other type of code, like not Braille, but like some sort of like spy thing? I don't know. But they never hinted it like at any point in the movie. No. D. Rees is obviously a good director, but at some point you almost feel like she, even she doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. The, the, the events of the film are so convoluted. And unless you have like a really good knowledge of the background, the historical background, it is so tough to follow. At the beginning of the film, like they go to th- like 10 different places from like El Salvador to like Houston to St. Louis to all these random places that serve no purpose. And then Anne Hathaway ends up hopping around place to place um, without any real direction. So you wonder how she ends up in all these places in the, you know, in the first place. And then there's like multi-layered plots. There's the subplot with her strained relationship with her daughter, a husband that we never ever see. The fight with the editors feels like something from uh, the Post or a journalism film, but yet it's a thriller um, crime caper. And it's so spliced together poorly that you lose track of all these threads. Well, especially the character motivations like you. Exactly. uh, There's multiple characters who approach Anne Hathaway's character and they ask her, well, why are you still here in this awful place? And she's not able to tell them. And we're like, (laughs) but please tell us, like, why are you still? She she makes up some like half dramatic line of just being like, well, I missed my plan and I was chasing you over the story, I guess. Yeah. And we're still going like. What story? What are you talking about? Yeah, like because like she she had left, uh, she'd gone on leave from the paper uh, so that she could take care of her father. She didn't have a story to file, and her editor wasn't even that interested because it was like Reagan's 
re-election campaign. He didn't want a story from her about Iran-Contra. And we never really see, like, the aftermath of the article that her partner writes. Right. Because, like, at some point, Anne Hathaway gathers all this evidence, and I'm not even sure how she does it. It's it's not clear how she pieces it all together. Even as an audience, it's really hard to piece together. But somehow she does it. She sends all this, uh, this material. She puts in an envelope, which is found by, like, a supposed French spy. And all this information ends up back at the paper she works at. And then it gets printed and written into an article. And nothing else happens after that. It's just kind of like, well, la-di-da. That's just uh, an episode. Uh, who cares about Willem Dafoe and Anne Hathaway? Uh, that's it. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. And it's such a huge waste because the cast is really good. Um, Willem Dafoe, Toby Jones, Rosie Perez, who plays her journalist friend. Mel Rodriguez is this like shady sort of middleman arms dealer. And we're not exactly sure what his motivations ever were. Um, I don't know if if it's that important, but a lot of clarification would be nice. And then at the end of it, they introduce this mysterious character called Bob Weir, which is kind of who's kind of like a, a fixer. And 30 seconds, it gives you like 10 flashbacks and voiceovers where you're like, oh, OK, so I guess we were supposed to know this guy all along, but the film never really hints towards him yeah. or really makes any reference to him other than him being like this mysterious uh, figure who's like the puppet master. Um, I think this is such a huge misstep for Netflix. And it's recommended as a top 10, eh? Like, I guess they're, they've marketed the hell out of it. And um, I guess, you know, the name recognition of some of the stars is appealing to people who are just browsing casually on the platform. I'd like to read the book because I wonder how much it strays from the book and how much is left out. Because I feel like the book is probably a lot better at explaining what's going on. Like you said, this is easily one of the most confusing films I've ever seen. And I, I've, I've seen some damn confusing films. Yeah. I feel like Netflix picked it up more because, you know, they, they're they just in this sort of black hole kind of mode where they're just acquiring stuff regardless of how good it is. And just, just to kind of stack their library with originals and make, you know, uh, as long as they can get, they can make it seem like there's a surplus of good content. And by good content, I mean like your average casual viewer who hasn't been following any of the the reviews or the, you know, reports out of various festivals who sees actors that they like, mm-hmm. like Affleck and Hathaway in the marketing or in the trailer. And they're and they're like, ooh cool, like journalist slash um, spy thriller. That seems like something I want to watch on a Friday night. And they just watch it. And, you know, as we know, Netflix has been they have been releasing a few more numbers lately, but they've changed what they consider to be like a view to just like the first few seconds of a movie now. Yeah, as long as you click it, it's considered a view. It's so hilarious. So, I mean, on that score, like it's not a huge failure for them. Like the movie may be unsatisfactory and totally confusing, but, you know, it, uh, for Netflix's bottom line, it's actually probably not that bad. Um, How bad was Ben Affleck in this? Yeah, he was on autopilot. I mean, I think I'm curious to see what comes out of this new one he's got coming out oh called The God. Way Back. Where it's, it's kind of like loosely inspired by his own struggle with alcoholism, and but it sounds you know. stupid because we've seen these movies before, like some like you know coach who's got personal issues ends up coaching like a ragtag yeah. uh, underdog high school team to a championship. Like we saw this in Glory Road, which is like actually a fine movie. We saw this in Remember the Titans. The Mighty Ducks is getting a reboot. Like this is such a a cliched story such a mail-it-in performance for him like you you can sell this movie as some sort of like personal journey for Affleck but at the same time like whether or not this movie is good or not is kind of independent of that and I'm so skeptical because 
I don't think he's ever been like a good actor. <laughs> and this is this film is like further proof. He's so wooden. It is so infuriating to watch him. And that love story. So there's there's a point where Anne Hathaway's character uh, meets up with him and he's being coy and he's being like, well, maybe you shouldn't trust people, but you can kind of trust me. And then the next scene, the, ex- the next shot is them, the two of them naked in yeah. bed. Yeah. And you're just like, what? How did we go from a conversation to that to some romantic affair, which is apparently in the books, but in this in the movie, it is never teased out because Ben Affleck shows up for maybe five minutes at a time and then he disappears for a full hour. There were whole sections where I was confused about whether or not he was the Bob Weir or the other name that was like the alias of Bob Weir. Yeah, Epperson. Epperson. And I, I was like, wait, I thought his name was Morrison. So like <laughs> I and I didn't know whether the the guy who ended up being Bob Weir was important at all because anyway, it's just silly. Uh, <laughs> I, I agree. It is completely silly. And he, he looks like he has got too much Botox on him too. Not only is his like line de- de- delivery wooden, his face is wooden too. <laughs> like you put, you put a cardboard cutout of Ben Affleck in some of those shots and it is just the same exact thing. There's even one shot where like, I think there's a plane taking off and he the, the, the shot lingers on him and he's kind of supposed to look in the distance. And I thought it was the cheesiest thing I've ever seen. Um, one of those like in movie posters and war films where like the soldiers look far off into the distance contemplating life and, and what else happens after the war. It's one of those shots. If you ever go see the Wikipedia page for this movie... There is no real plot summary. <laughs> I have a feeling it's because no one can really understand what is going on. So if you read the plot summary on Wikipedia, keep in mind that it is just like the basically plot synopsis of what you would get on IMDb, but not like a plot summary that you would get for other movies. Yeah. Well, and uh, I guess the the workaround would be to... Uh do like the Coles notes of the uh, the Joan Didion novel, but yeah, it's just reflective of how difficult it was to follow that film. Well, anyway, if you log into Netflix and you see that top ten badge that they're uh, using now on the platform to kind of show, you know, the 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 high ranking or most popular stuff, um, maybe give this one a pass. Yeah, I agree. But actually, the comment that you made about uh, Ben Affleck looking uh, off into nothingness is a decent segue into the next thing we were going to talk about. Oh, yeah. Um, hey, look at that. We're natural. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is The Invisible Man, which involves a lot of actors looking off into seemingly nothingness um, and having to react against it. Uh-huh. And while it didn't work in The Last Thing He Wanted, it does work pretty well in The Invisible Man. So this is a movie from Lee Winnell, mm. who some people will remember as uh, the guy who kind of burst out as a director with the movie Upgrade a couple of years ago. I still haven't seen it. I've been meaning to since it came out because I've heard nothing but great things about it, especially when it comes to the camera work and how they were kind of uh, they, they it was a story about a guy who gets these sort of cybernetic upgrades and has all these elite combat capabilities um, and Prior to that movie kind of bursting him onto the scene as a director, he'd been a an actor and executive producer in a lot of horror movies, including the Saw franchise. Um, so he's got his chops in the industry. This is the, the next attempt in the so-called uh, Universal Monsters or Dark Universe of projects. Uh, 
it's been kind of sputtering for years now. There was mm-hmm. uh, they tried to do it with uh, Dracula Untold to kind of get this cinematic universe off the ground. They had uh, kind of a a medieval supernatural thing with the Dracula character and Luke Evans in the title role. Uh, then they tried to do it, started up again with the Mummy with Tom Cruise and Russell Crowe in, uh, what was that, 2017? Mm-hmm. And there was this much lampooned uh, cast image that was kind of photoshopped together of their proposed cast for the future of this shared universe where you're going to have uh, Johnny Depp as the Invisible Man and um, Javier Bardem as uh, Frankenstein's monster. And they had like four or five movies planned out, but of course the okay. uh, flop of The Mummy kind of stalled all those plans, causing Universal to sort of press the pause button, kind of figure out what they were going to do. And now their new idea is not so much a shared universe, but kind of like what DC is doing with sort of individual movies that could eventually become a shared universe, but for now are just kind of Mm one-offs. And this movie imagines the Invisible Man not as a kind of crazed chemist who takes some sort of concoction and it drives him mad and sends him on a killing spree, but as a crazed optical technician working in the Bay Area, San Francisco, um, who has become very wealthy. He's like a tech bro type of dude. He's got this beautiful house. Um, But the movie is actually told from the perspective of his girlfriend, played by Elizabeth Moss, and the abusive relationship that that this guy, Adrian Griffin, subjected her to and her attempt to escape from him. And then uh, his decision to use his invisibility tech to chase after her, make her look like she's crazy, and perpetuate this campaign of, like, emotional abuse against her. James! 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 Uh, yeah, what, what, what happened? What happened? What? I saw some things. It was right there. It was right there. There were footprints. I saw it. You saw, you saw, saw, you saw footprints? I, yes, I saw them. The sheets! I saw it right there! I saw them. See, Adrian will haunt you if you let him. So it's actually, it's a very timely movie, mm-hmm. if it isn't already apparent. Um, but it's what Wanell does with the camera moves and the use of tension that really brings this whole thing together. I think it could have in less capable hands or less um, experienced hands. It might have come across as being very silly. Right. But he's like a veteran horror movie guy, right? So. Yeah, he knows he knows how to use his camera very judiciously, like. Uh, there's moments in this movie where Elizabeth Moss's, Moss's character is looking at absolutely nothing. And the camera pans from her face over to an empty corner of her room. And they, they're not doing any trickery with CGI or, or even practical effects. There's literally nothing there. But it still works. Like, it still fills you with a certain amount of, like, uh, fear. So that speaks to, like, how well he's editing it. How the, Certainly the performance from Elizabeth Moss, that she can sell that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when the action scenes do pop up, in various moments, you know, she's got to flail around as if there's this, you know, invisible assailant, like choking her out. And she's, you know, that actually works as well. So, uh, and then occasionally you see these sort of upgrade style, um, motion controlled camera moves where the whole like axis of the movie shifts on in a weird way. And kind of, it gives this sense of, uh, of more paranoia and, uh, so otherworldliness, but not like supernatural because obviously it's all, like this guy's abilities are all uh, through this fancy invisibility suit that he's built for himself. It's not like he can, uh, it's not like some sort of uh, secret power, or like, you know, 
yeah radioactive thing like spider-man right um have you ever seen uh, this is an old movie but kevin bacon was in a sort of invisible man movie called the hollow called hollow man oh uh i've heard the title but i've never seen it okay so this was i think early 2000s ish and one of the problems it had was that the hollow man he played was kind of like a creep and a murderer and that was kind of like the extent mm. of this character how like becoming invisible makes him psychotic and he can't see himself so i think it's really interesting that they updated it to someone who is basically a, an abusive person to begin with yes um and it the the being invisible becomes like more of a an extension of his own personality yes rather than than a symptom yeah that's where this movie i think is really effective too is i when i left the movie i was thinking to myself like if you've ever seen a movie with like a ghost or a poltergeist or some invisible demon that like pulls the victims or the, the main characters across the room or tosses them around or um or plays pranks on them by like you know making everything in the kitchen hover and then dropping it or you know <laughs> yeah. you know there's there's a bunch of ghost movies that that do that like and really cheap stuff really you know yeah in terms of like budgeting they they didn't have to spend a lot to achieve some of these effects but the thing that those ghost movies kind of struggle with is like if you were a supernatural demon who was invisible why would you care about like torturing victims like what at a certain point you're like if you're just going to kill the humans just kill the humans right yes it's kind of hard to square that with a square like you know mischievous behavior with some sort of otherworldly entity Uh but in this because it's just a human dude who has this crazy technology at his disposal and a lot of resources, a lot of money, um, his behavior, his like pulling pranks on her at first and then kind of stepping it up and getting more violent with it as, as time goes by makes so much sense. It's like it, it, there's kind of like a cruel logic to it. Like you can 100% see an abusive boyfriend pulling this kind of stuff even though it has no like points like if you decided to kill her you obviously could but he's having more fun making everyone think that she's crazy and destroying her life in little meticulous ways you know at one point he waits for her to go to a job interview but has stolen the uh, portfolio that she was going to present to the interviewer out of the the case so that she's embarrassed in this job interview mm-hmm. and then later on she um he waits for her to be like collapsed on the floor in uh like anguish and waits for a character to come and try to comfort her and then hits the other character to make it seem like elizabeth moth's moss's character hit the friend and therefore like cuts her off from more people and you know busts up friendships and things like that mm. so it is very like very carefully planned out um you know, you you definitely feel for the main character in a way that I think might be harder in a supernatural ghost movie because, mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of supernatural movies, you're like, well, why doesn't the person just leave the house or like run away, you know? Um, right. So anyway, it, there's... If only it was that easy to run away from our problems, eh? Just leave <laughs> yeah. the house, yeah. run away. Especially if it's like a haunted house and the ghost only lives in that one place. Like, uh, yeah. Obviously, there's other movies where, like, the ghost follows the person around. But anyway, given that they spent, like, I think it was, like, less than $20 million on this movie, mm-hmm. um, and it's already tracking to be one of the the more successful things in the in the, uh, the next couple of weeks, at least until, like, I guess Mulan maybe mm-hmm. uh, outperforms it in, in March. But Sequel potential? Yeah, there's, there's definitely some sequel potential. I'm not going to spoil exactly how that goes down, but I, whether or not they decide to do something similar with 
the other characters in the Universal Monsters um, uh, roster. Like, you know, obviously they tried it with the kind of medieval version of Dracula and that didn't really work. <laughs> so if they update Dracula for a 21st century vibe and maybe do that with Frankenstein and uh, a few of the others like Wolfman, mm-hmm. you know, obviously those have been done here and there. But I'd be curious to see like what a team up movie would look at look like or, you know, if they just want to keep it like one offs the way they're currently doing. I'm fine with that, too. We are getting a vampire movie, though, eh? with Morbius. <laughs> oh, yeah. But that's like a Marvel thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it, it's a modern day vampire movie. That's what it right. is. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Jared Leto, like looking pale and, uh, you know, going uh, yeah, nuts exactly. again. Again, my question remains, if he's such a method actor, do you think he drank blood? I believe it. (laughs) We'll talk about it. When (laughs) When does that come out? Like this summer sometime? Yeah. Yeah. It comes out this year. Okay. Yeah. No, but uh, I would like, I know you're not a huge horror movie guy, but I think, I think you could probably handle this one and you'd probably like it. um, If only from like the production level of like, you know, what they're doing, what they're doing with these uh, motion controlled cameras and uh, that kind of thing. It's more like a monster movie, though, eh? Rather than horror. It's well, and and yeah, and this is where it gets back to like the comparison with the ghost movie because on one front you're not as scared because you know that it's just a human dude and like, right? Admittedly, he's very athletic and he can like throw people around and stuff, um, <laughs> but. But you're not as scared of him as you would be like some sort of supernatural monster that can like rip you to pieces or something. Exactly. He's not like an exactly like a demon. Yeah. But but on the other hand, you're like, like I was saying, you know, you he's not scary from like a like a threat to your life kind of way. But he is scary in the sense that he's willing to do just about anything and he has the resources to do it. And he may not try to like physically kill you right away, but he'll like ruin your life first. So mm-hmm. it's yeah, there's it's scary in a different way, but in a it there, there's definitely a few jump scares in there, like you know uh, a handful, but not cheap ones. So I, mm-hmm. I appreciated that. Yeah, but tell me about uh, Assassin, the Assassin, the Assassin. Yeah. So okay, so this movie actually came out in 2015. Um, it's just taken me a while to get my hands on it. Um, this is the first film by a Taiwanese director. His name is uh, Ho Xiaoxian. Um, it's his first film in eight years, I believe. And this is a guy who was considered like one of the most iconic directors in the eighties and nineties. He did a lot of movies that were very slow burn dramas and really concentrated on a lot of historical events in Asia. But anyway, so the assassin is based on a, a story, a historical story about a woman who is raised by nuns to be an assassin. And the main crux of the story is that as a test of her commitment to being an assassin, she is tasked to murder this sort of regional uh, governor who happens to be her cousin and someone who she was betrothed to at some point back in the day before she was raised by nuns. It stars Su Chi, who is a Taiwanese actress, who was actually like had a very interesting career arc. She was discovered as a model, kind of became like a softcore porn actress, oh. and then became like a mainstream film actress and has become really successful since. This film was selected for 2015 at Con, where Ho won the award for best director, and it was entered at the Academy Awards for Best Foreign Language Film, but was not nominated, which 
I think led to a lot of outcry, especially with, with, with a lot of critics who really praised the directing. And the directing, I think, is the biggest selling point of this film. It's a brisk uh, 110 minutes, uh, which is which is pretty short for like a historical epic drama. Oh, yeah. Usually in this case, I have to say, like, other than the directing, um, I found the movie a little hard to follow and a little hard to enjoy if you didn't enjoy the subtleties. So the beginning, of course, is shot in black and white. That already turns off viewers. It is a subtitled film, so that turns off viewers even more. And even though it is film, it should be in a 16-9 aspect ratio, so like your usual aspect ratio, it is at times clipped into like uh like a 121 to one ratio. So you have the two black bars on the sides. And it oftentimes there's sort of like a veil like a sheer oh, yeah. um, cloth that covers the lens. And it's supposed to represent the assassin sort of like following the events of the the court and the characters. Um, the action is very sparse um, because Su Chi, who plays the assassin, is not trained in, you know, like martial arts or anything like that. Not like a lot of actors in like these wuxia uh, martial arts Chinese films, but you get this like really melodramatic, really emotional slow burn drama where people, you know, the characters start mumbling words, <laughs> speak under their breath. There's little nuances in dialogue about court intrigue, but because like there's so many characters that they mention, but may not be on the screen a lot, it's a little hard to follow. And there are certain scenes where you think something's going to happen, but it doesn't because the action is so sparse. Um, so there'll be a fight that starts and then a couple people will die. And then all of a sudden they'll freeze the assassin and whoever the target is, they'll freeze and then they'll share a look and then the assassin will walk away. And you're from that, you're supposed to like understand that it's this assassin sort of going through this like internal turmoil <laughs> and deciding whether or not she wants to follow through with her mission. But sometimes because it's so incomplete at times, um, you almost want more um, until the very end where like you get the sense that the end is coming, but it's not satisfactory. It's not a very like beginning, middle, end type of story. It's just a, ch a single chapter in this like moment in Chinese history that is sort of like mythologized. What time period is it in? Tang Dynasty. So ninth century. Ninth century. Okay. So, yeah. So the production value is really good. Um, if you like, you know, a lot of shots of um, trees and, and woods, it's it's really great. Uh, there is a bit of Terrence Malick in this. I was going to say, yeah, whenever you do like trees and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you don't get the music. Um, the, the dialogue is stilted, much like a Malick film, but it doesn't come together quite like a good Malick film. And I think it's kind of a shame because I, I think this movie could have been a lot better than it actually is. But if you have a chance, I, I think it, it's worth tracking down. It's, it's uh, The production history itself is quite interesting because it started off 
as having like a modest budget, getting a lot of subsidies from the Taiwanese government. And then it ended up going over budget. Oh. And a lot of the locations are from like Mongolia and northern China. So um, it, it's quite uh, visually appealing. But I, I never understood why he didn't do the full 16-9 aspect ratio and, and chose to leave the two black bars on the side. I, I looked online, but I, I never really got like a satisfactory answer to this. And then, so, uh, have you seen uh, any of his other previous movies? Like, were you familiar with his other work before he did this one? Okay, so I'm familiar with him, but not his other work. The one movie I really, really want to track down, but it's like a hundred bucks for a DV- like an old bootleg DVD on eBay. Oh, no. It's called A City of Sadness. And it's one of the first films to deal with the Chinese KMT fleeing China and coming to Taiwan and a family that goes through like a generation of struggle. Um, this is a director who just like, who doesn't do a lot of uh, films in general. He He's very selective. He was pretty prolific in the 80s and 90s, but a lot of these films kind of get lost, right? Because they don't get updated or they don't get like the physical release. And this is one thing like about streaming too, is that they don't have like the entire library. Yeah. And so a lot of the films, like he's known for the Puppet Master, which won like the 1993 Grand Jury Prize at Cannes. That's like impossible to track down too. Weird, yeah. Well, that happens in like countries out, outside of Asia as well, where like, you know, a movie will, if the distribution wasn't figured out or yes. if somebody didn't do the right deal for like, a, you know, a particular region, then it's just very hard to find. Like, uh, this is obviously like the, the example I'm reminded of. It got nothing to do with like Chinese history or anything, but Mike Myers uh, had his d- directorial debut for this movie called uh, Superman. Yeah. It's a documentary about a music producer named Shep Gordon. And the price for that thing on Amazon was like mm. 50 or $60 for years. I saw it at TIFF like theatrically, but then the the actual like, barrier for entry for people who actually wanted to circle back and watch it was uh, uh, was arguably like a little high. And I think in that case, it had part, partly to do with like the collapse of the Weinstein company and stuff like that. But right. yeah, like so, sometimes there's these movies that just kind of like fall between the cracks and it you, you kind of have to be like cross your fingers and hope that uh, some streaming company decides to pick it up. Yeah, exactly. And like if you read critic reviews, they're like effusive in their praise about this film. But I don't really share that optimism i I think i I use this word a lot but it gets a little pretentious (laughs) because the story itself doesn't move at a pace that you'd like and and like i said the dialogue is sparse so there's a lot of nuance in there it's kind of like um it's much better than the anne hathaway movie but uh there's a lot of nuance in it in that you need to know a bit of historical events to really understand it right yeah if you get a chance to ever see it i I think it's worth watching so where did you end up finding it i bought the blu-ray on amazon it was on sale oh nice okay so it was one of those blind buys where like i'm I'm, i guess i was bored or something and i went on amazon and it just showed up and i was like well i i gotta see this movie and su chi who is the the main actress in this was like a really famous famous person uh back in like the 80s and 90s just because she did a lot of you know her story as this model turned actress right oh so we have we have a little bit of extra time before we uh before we finish this episode so uh uh the the other thing that i was watching recently is uh the first couple of episodes from the new season of altered carbon on netflix Mm. Yes, that has been a lot of buzz lately. Yeah, so Ultra Carbon is a, it's a show that I watched uh, the first season of pretty much as soon as it came out a couple of years ago, and 
it's a cyberpunk uh, neo-noir kind of a thing with a lot of DNA from Blade Runner and um, other movies of the genre. And it's, it's based on a on a sci-fi novel, but I feel like this show is probably going to like exceed the boundaries of that novel pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. It's like a far future version of our solar system where humans have invented a way to prolong life after their physical body dies by containing their consciousness in this little disc in the back of your neck uh, called a cortical stack. And you can your physical body can be killed you know you can be shot full of bullets or you can have your head chopped off or something but as long as the physical disc that your consciousness is stored on the stack is uh, intact you will you can be loaded into a new body and you can you know live for hundreds of years if you if you choose and so the this technology is abused by the rich in this society and uh, you know most of the rich people live basically forever uh while the the poor you know they're lucky if they can get one new sleeve or one new body um you know some point in their life if they save up everything they've ever earned so what's this season about so this season is a direct continuation from the last season which had joel kinnaman as this uh character named takeshi kovach who was a freedom fighter uh slash private eye who got pulled into this uh, galactic battle between uh, the kind of militaristic government and the uh, the rich and the poor and um, various intrigues between all of these factions and he tried to stay kind of outside of it but kept getting pulled back in because he's a he's a pretty talented fighter slash investigator guy and everyone wants a piece of him the first season started with him investigating the murder of a rich guy of course the murder of just the physical body you know the rich guy could keep uploading his body his uh, consciousness into into other uh, copies of himself but we slowly learned about uh, Takeshi Kovacs's background as a freedom fighter and his connection to the this kind of religious figure who actually invented the idea of these stacks these uh, consciousness discs and so the new season finds Takeshi on a new planet trying to track down this woman this uh, leader of the the rebellion who he had fallen in love with and he spent like mm-hmm. decades at this point looking for her and as the season opens uh, he's got a a tip that some she's she's been reinserted in a new body and she's out there but maybe she doesn't remember who she is so he's got to find her before the evil militaristic government uh types track her down and kill her for real send the rapid reaction force all available Victorians now what did you say? Lock it down. No one in or out. What's going on? Impossible. This is command. We have breach. Weapons high. Tangle is organic. Organic. And uh, there's, of course, other characters in the mix, uh, various uh, B-plots and things, but uh, I quite like it. I think the... You know, even though the first season felt like it was borrowing a little bit too heavily from Blade Runner, I think they've built up the world enough now that it feels like its own thing. And uh, we're familiar with the technology. We, You get a sense of how the um, this kind of immortality or like close to immortality can at one point like it extends the lives of these people and makes it so that that they're capable of doing things that we could only dream of but then Mm -hmm. there's ways that the show kind of finds to limit that immortality so it doesn't feel like a gimmick or or like a cheap kind of way to get out of um, narrative consequences and of course you know being that they can 
put the character into whatever body they want, the show can kind of continue forever. <laughs> so from like a, a uh, business perspective, you know, it's kind of like Doctor Who in the, in the UK, where when an actor gets tired of playing the main character, they just recast them. <laughs> that's, that's kind of like a, a good way to go about it, though. Keeps it fresh, too. The first season, it was you know, Joel Kinnaman with, you know, doing his big hulking Joel Kinnaman thing. And uh, now you've got Anthony Mackie in the lead role. Different actors, different styles. They bring back a few of the same faces from the first season. You know, the uh, Takeshi Kovacs's best friend is this AI named Poe, who looks a lot like Edgar Allan Poe, but uh, he's kind of like a, a digital friend who has this sort of glitching memory. Um, and he can take control of these AI hotels and make like guns appear from the the walls and like kill people that are mm-hmm. giving Takeshi too much trouble. I feel like robots with a sense of humor are a really underrated movie trope. Yeah. And the fact that he looks like a 19th century American poet slash writer is, uh, is kind of a fun detail. Right. right. Um, and they, you know, they, they, there's a, there's a lot of like fight choreography in this show, which is fun to look at. They tend to give the, the, the main characters some sort of like uh, genetic enhancements that makes them even better in combat. So they're always pulling off these spins and flips and kicks and things. Uh, so that's like, you know, that kind of hits you in the, uh, uh, in the part of your brain that, that, uh, you know, I call it like the fast and furious brain where it's like, <laughs> stop, stop thinking and, uh, just enjoy the, the ride kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I would, I'd recommend people go and check out the first season if you, if you started it and dropped off and then so you can catch up with this mm-hmm. or honestly, I mean, being that they can keep recasting the, the main character after a certain point, kind of like on Dr. Who, right. You can probably just jump right in wherever. Maybe at the beginning of a season, maybe not in the middle of a season, but uh, yeah, you can kind of choose choose the actor that you want and kind of take it from there. All right. I think that's all the time we have for our show, for this episode anyway. But we got through a lot, so skip the last thing he wanted. Check out The Invisible Man. Track down the assassin and give it a shot if you can. Um, if you don't mind subtitles and you're interested in some less than mainstream films, I guess. Yeah, a bit of uh, Taiwanese art house. That's not something you, you see every day. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a good way to describe it, actually. Check out uh, Altered Carbon. So Rob is a fan, and if you're into sci-fi, that might be right up your alley. But coming to you from Vancouver, my name is Jason Chen. And coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>